chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is what it says. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Well, good morning. I am so glad that we are able to gather together. And I know you hear that a lot, but I was just sharing a few moments ago uh, with, with, some, with some really just friends and just the idea of, I, I need this um, routinely in my life, the ability to gather together, to see smiling faces, uh, to share with one another what's actually going on. And so we try to create that definitely uh, on Sunday morning, but we, we know we can only just limit it to Sunday. And so our hope is that as we share stories together, we get to know each other's stories and we swap those stories, those burdens, maybe those prayer requests, just what's going on, that it becomes not just here on Sunday morning, but it spills out into the just every day of life where you're sending texts, where your phone calls, where you see someone post on social media and maybe someone posts a comment and a response and you know that it's not just empty words, it's actually filled with some depth and some meaning because you've gotten to know each other. And so our hope is that as we gather, as we share, as we just even orients our time to focus on who Jesus is and what he has done, um, that we can allow that to truly spill out um, into the everyday things of life. And one of the ways that we do that is our values. Every year we take time to highlight, if you're in the room, you know, these five values over here on the wall. If you're online, you can go to the About Us page um, and, and talk about who we are as a church to explain our vision and our values. While every church shares a common mission to make disciples and make disciples, to help people love God and love others, and I would sum it up in that way, that that is the core, every local church has a unique way to help express that in their community because every community is different. No matter whether you go to Africa or South America or Asia or Europe or even within the United States, New York City, the South, the Pacific Northwest, Vancouver. We have a local just culture and expression. And so for us to help be the bridge, the gap between what God desires to do in the world, we, we want to express that in a way that's accessible, plain, and clear. And so one of the functions that our values serve is to help us do that well, because values both drive action and are the justification for our action. What is in your heart, your core convictions, what you value will come out and how you act, how you respond consciously and unconsciously, what is within you will come out. For example, if someone says they value truth 
Yet in every conversation, they either exaggerate or omit details to get their way, then it may be fair to consider that they don't actually value truth, no matter what they say. I'll give you another one. Oh, I hear people say, oh, I love my sleep. However, they always appear to be tired. Some people may, in fact, need more sleep than others, but when you press into their nightly habits, you find that they stay up way too late at home, or there's way too time out. They use screens right before bed. They don't even maybe make their bed, which is actually a, a helpful function getting a good night's sleep, or even take action during the day so that they can lay their head down at night and know that maybe I gave it my best and have maybe an eternal trust in God that you can give it your best, put your best foot forward, or even when you didn't have your best, you can actually rest because God holds all things in his hands. So when you think about that, how people maybe say they value or even believe something, actions can either confirm that reality or undermine it. So values are both caught and they are taught, but they are also cultivated. And to cultivate a value means to know that it's good for you and to integrate practices into your life to better express that value. Caught values are embodied or expressed verbally by others, and together you see someone express a value, and you, want to, you see their life, and you go, I want that for me or for my life. And so people living life together with shared values create a culture when you begin to integrate then specific practices that these values begin to reinforce each other and support each other and truly... Even for generations, it's not lip service to our values, but when people look at our church community, they say, man, they really live out what they say they believe, or to set it in accordance with our series, they live out what, what they say they value. So our actions can both confirm what we say or undermine them. And our hope is that our values at generations begin to be expressed through your lives. Now, the way our values are worded is they're worded as a choice to help you navigate those everyday things of life, to maybe consciously choose something over something else, to help make decisions throughout the day. But they're not just pithy little phrases, something over something to, to kind of make it, you know, social media popular or pithy, um, just to, to, to make those motivating. Um, they actually have a longer expression and sentence that goes underneath them. And even beneath that longer sentence that gives some context to that phrase, they're actually cited uh, um, biblically. So, so they come from the Bible. They have specific biblical citations. Let me say it another way, these values are biblical in theme, are biblical themes woven throughout Scripture, but serve as a modern way to help you live your faith every day, everywhere. So when we talk about these biblical citations, um, some of you getting back in that school or, or you're an avid reader and you know that in books or in, or in blogs, they, they put these things called like footnotes or citations. So all of our values, when you start to trace them down, they have these citations that come from specific 
passages within the Bible that are woven throughout the story of Scripture to help us find this expression. So it's not just because Kyle thought these values sounded cool and had this nice alliteration, you know, where, like I like to say, is if you order them in the right way, they, they make the phrase GPS and, you know, help you navigate life. It's not because I'm overly creative, but it's really because as you search the Scriptures, there's certain themes, especially in the way of Jesus, that start to emerge that I think are most applicable and helpful in our context that actually break down barriers for people who might be apprehensive or be underinformed about the way of Jesus or even, even misinformed about the way of Jesus. They think they know what this Christian thing is all about, but then when they bump into some of these values, it kind of throws them off in the most helpful way. And also, I want people to get a full view of the church community they are opting into, which is why we talk about our values. Because when people walk through those doors or tune in online or run into people around Generations Church and they consider, is this a church community that I could see myself be a part of? Maybe with all the trauma and baggage of church hurt, or, or maybe there's a lot of unanswered questions that there's some, some high anxiety of ha- is this going to be like I've experienced in the past? Is this going to be maybe even like TV shows? Or is this going to be like this Christian over here? Because I'm not sure I like how I've interacted with them or this feels abrasive. So when you have all these open questions or maybe even anxiety or thoughts, my hope is that for generations churches that we can express the way of Jesus in a way to both break down those barriers and also point to biblical truth. For, for years, I've said this, that if you've got a hobby, church is a really lame hobby. <laughs> it's not actually a good hobby. It's one of the lamest hobbies in the universe. Go get a boat, go fishing, go mountain climbing, go skiing, go golfing. If you're looking for some self, sort of self kind of improvement experience, like do something other than church. There's a lot of other great things to try. This church as a self-help center is a terrible thing to devote your life to. I mean, it's Sunday morning. Depending on how early you get here, you can get up early. You're missing prime brunch hours. You're missing football. And you can start to develop a list of things that if I opt in to when this church, I'll say generations, gathers, it seems like a really terrible idea. It seems like a terrible inconvenience. You have to stand up a lot. Charles might ask you to pray with someone, and maybe you don't feel like you can pray with someone. And sometimes it's not always great because you never know what you're going to get, especially around here. It's never the same product twice. It's not something where you can walk into and know, yep, three songs, you know, stand, sit on the first or third verse for some of you church people, and then, like, you know, I, we're going to do things this way. It's, it, there's some inconsistency there, and sometimes people may sing off key, or we may have to restart a song over, and you're like, man, this is a terrible concert. And sometimes, sometimes... The guy who stands up front isn't even all that funny. So thank you for the pity laughs here at the moment. But, 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 but when you start to frame a gathering in the midst of all the other options, 
When you try to frame the Christian experience in a lot of different options, it's a terrible thing. It's a lame, lame, lame hobby. Because it's also extremely painful when you build relationships. When it forces to start you to self-assess and consider your inner life. And then do it with others. To press into some of the difficulty and things that you would just rather not think about. And knowing that even as you show up and engage, that people are on the map of their engagement as well. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. Yep. That you could show up and you could, I mean, Charles has said this a few times, but in, I, try, I try to say it regularly, is when, when people engage, it's like you're all over. I, we try not to assume here that you know the Bible cover to cover, because let's face it, sometimes... We, some of us are better well-versed in the Bible, and some of us, it's like, man, it's just a struggle to sit down and read and comprehend. That, that when we engage, that, that people are on the spectrum of denial, of like, do I even need a God? That doesn't seem like it's for me. Or there's maybe uh, someone who's here who's like trying to attempt it for the first time, and as you walk through the doors, like there's a level of anxiety. And I don't know if you've considered that, that, that there are people all over the map. of it's, it, This is not comfortable for them at times because they've maybe stepping out of denial. Maybe they're attempting. There's a high level of anxiety. Maybe sometimes people, you know, are, are filled with loving passion. You also have people on the journey who are in that cage stage, which is, I'm going to fight you because I believe everything is true, and they're ready to pick an argument because they've been studying, they're apologetic, they're filled with, the, with not just the loving passion, but the angry passion. Or maybe there's a state, a state of disequilibrium where there's questionings and uncertainty where they thought they knew truth. And they're being forced to reconsider and reorient because they're being invited to something deeper. Or there's a temptation because of hurt to recluse and distance. Or people are undergoing suffering and wondering, is this actually a remedy? Or maybe there's people here who are just simply content and comfortable. The reality is is that when you engage with the church, you have people who are all at different stages and it's not some hierarchy like you graduate like a video game and you played level one, so now let's go to level two, like, let's go to level three, where you get all these nice little perks and badges to make yourself feel better and feel more accomplished. It doesn't quite work like that. And so to engage on a consistent level, at times compared to the rest of our world, when sometimes when you seek approval or achievement or a level of comfort, and you begin to engage in find these values being communicated and then try to express them. Sometimes it's terribly difficult. So following Jesus is a terrible hobby. It's even painful at times, but it's totally worth it. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifelong commitment. See, following Jesus... It's truly a beautiful and profound thing. It's one that transforms your life and relationships. It's one that brings about joy in the midst of suffering. It's one that gives you peace when your world is in chaos. It's one that gives you hope when you trend towards despair. 
And some of you know those words as I say that, not just because you're like, yep, that sounds like good truth, but because it's become lived experience on your own journey. And no matter where you're at and how you're engaging, whether you feel a high level of pressure and anxiety, or if you're someone who's been doing this for a long while, following Jesus is a lifelong joy that brings transformation. And as I say that, those words, for some of you, following Jesus has been a burden. It's felt more like a difficult pill to swallow something that you've had to grind your teeth on. And so when I say that following Jesus is a lifelong joy, that almost doesn't quite seem right. Because we need help along that journey of transformation. We aren't alone in this. In fact, early Jesus followers, because they were human, needed reminders and encouragement to express the way of Jesus. And one of these passages that express progress over perfection could be cited as Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to read that again, and the words are definitely going to be on the screen behind me. And just one of those tools, because I'm all about engaging with your Bible, if, if you have kind of the chronological, um, there's some letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so... Um, I remember that because for whatever reason, when I was in my own youth ministry, I remember girls eat potato chips. So it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if that helps you remember of the order of those letters. So hopefully maybe that for whatever reason sticks and that helps you if you're trying to flip through the pages of your Bible and like, where in the world is this, Kyle? If you come across one of those, you know kind of to go forward fast because they're short little letters that Paul writes to the church. And so we're actually going to jump into the middle of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church he started. And the story of him starting this church comes in Acts chapter 16. And it's this fascinating little story about how he engages with this woman named Lydia. And what comes out of this is a deep friendship and kinship with his church. In fact, Paul is now in prison um, and he's actually, they've sent him a gift and a correspondence to him, and that's what he's actually responding to. So when Paul writes this letter, he's sitting in change, having just received a gift from this church, and now he is writing back. And he wants them to know that he is thankful for their gift, and he eventually wants to return to Philippi, and he's now recovered from a nearly fatal illness, and he just it's interesting because if you were to summarize this letter as a whole, it would be considered one of the word joy is repeated. And so I'll consider that context. He's sitting in chains. He's thankful for the gift, but yet this is one of joy. And this is where we pick up in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 he says not that i have already reached the goal or i'm already fully mature but i make every effort to take hold of it because i have been taken hold of by christ jesus brothers and sisters i do not consider myself to have taken hold of it but one thing i do forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead i pursue as my goal the prize promised by god's heavenly call in christ jesus Therefore, all who are mature should think in this way. 
And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. And eventually he says this, and I just want to continue this thought from Paul. Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to this example you have in us. For I have often told you, now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. It's a beautiful little thought in the midst of this, where Paul has just cited the reality of the hope of the resurrection. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection shaped all of Paul's life so that here in the midst of being in a difficult circumstance, as he reflects on his own life and wants to bring encouragement to this church, he talks about this idea of who has a hold of whom in this moment. He says, Christ has taken hold of me. It's interesting because Paul wrote from such a place of spiritual maturity and purity that we might expect that he believed that he had conquered all spiritual difficulties and saw himself as having arrived at near perfection. Paul was this guy who went around and started new churches, who, who discipled others, who led others to Christ, who had a heavenly call, had a really a true transformation with someone who hated Christianity and actually killed people and then has this encounter with Jesus that totally transforms and flips his life. And so that now Christianity following Jesus is not just simply a hobby, but he's given his life over to it. It's not something that is an aspect of who he is, but it is now he's defined by that identity and, and is driven by that reality. But it's not like Paul here is saying, oh, I am chasing this Jesus around like we might follow, I guess, a dog that's pulling you on a leash and you got to try to keep up as my dog often pulls me around when I try to walk him and you're just trying to keep up. No, Paul says, Christ has a hold of me. Amen. See, what Paul expresses here is not type of, some type of spiritual ascension, this, this knowledge that stays in the mind or a state of action that makes his, his, his words and his action right or good at every single moment at which times his opponents claim that actually what Paul is combating here is this idea of because we know these right things, then we can then act right. And because we have this knowledge, we are now have reached this place where we have, quote unquote, leveled up. And what Paul is saying here is the goal is not to, quote unquote, level up, but in some way, level down. Because the only way to achieve the prize, to pursue the prize of the heavenly calling of Christ, is to recognize who has a hold of whom. And what Paul says is that it's Jesus who wraps him in his arms, who, who holds him. See, Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him a new person. So Paul would then lay hold of that which 
and wanted to see in the converting work of Jesus completely carried out himself. See, because Paul knew who Jesus was and what he had done, he'd experienced that in his life. It was so secure in his heart, then he could simply respond. He didn't have to chase Jesus down and say, I got to get more of that. I got to go after that in the sense of I've got to accomplish something and then I will be right or good. But because Jesus had moved towards him, because Jesus had a hold of him, he could simply live and respond. Jesus laid hold of Paul to conform him into the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul would lay hold of, of that and wanted to see the nature of Jesus then within himself. Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him a witness. So Paul would lay hold of both the experience of Jesus and to testify to that experience. It's a response Jesus laid hold of Paul to make him an instrument in the conversion of others, so Paul would lay hold of the work of bringing others to Jesus. Jesus laid hold of Paul to bring him into suffering, so that Paul would lay hold of even the work, even that the work of God in his life, wanting to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. So in the midst of sufferings, Paul would not run away from Jesus, but run to Jesus because he knows that in Jesus' suffering, Jesus had run towards him. Jesus laid hold of Paul so that the apostle might attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul would lay hold of that heavenly hope. It's a sign of a mutual embrace here that Jesus first initiated. You've all probably experienced one of those awkward hugs where you go in for a hug with someone and they don't really respond back. And it's kind of like a little like, what's, what's going on here? It feels kind of weird. And you're, you, you want that person to respond back. And so what's amazing is that no matter where we're at on our spiritual journey, whether we're at a place of denial or anxiety or maybe in a place of contentment or maybe an eagerness to learn more. God meets us there with the precise level of hug that we need. But what's amazing is that he initiates a hug to begin with. He sees us and knows us. And so when we think about progress over perfection, the idea is that Yes, we can come to a place where we go, even in our Christian walk, where we know that we're not perfect, nor will we ever reach a spot where we can essentially claim to be perfect and then sit back, evaluate, and assess others in terms of actions, values. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have difficult conversations, that we don't wrestle through difficult topics or, or seek to understand one another. But it comes a place of perfection in the sense of who sits on the judgment seat. There is one and one alone, and it is not you or I. And so when we start to then express that, we have then the capacity to treat every single person that we encounter like they are on their own spiritual journey and begin to engage with them wherever they are at. And I, and I have this full confidence that because God is active and at work in the world, that God is at work in every single person's life. And our role, when we start to express this value, is not sit like that we can sit back and point, nope, there's where God's at work. But start to develop a conversation and, and a posture, maybe over a meal or a cup of coffee or serving one another, where then we can start to say, have you considered that that blessing 
comes from God? Have you considered that this good thing may not be because of your own effort, but might be because of God's work? And, And we get to come from a place not of all supernatural knowledge and wisdom, but we get to come from a place of humility knowing that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together. And because Jesus meets us where we are at, we can meet others where they are at. And have the confidence that no matter what we see in their life, be praying for, be encouraging, and consider where might God be at work in their life, even if we don't see it. Again, because perfection kind of is this idea that we have this all-knowingness about us. And Maybe it's through the conversation and relationship that we actually start to engage and say, where is God taking hold and starting to express himself in their life? Because as we progress, the progress is maturity in Christ for us. Progress, I, I probably got to debunk some of this idea of like when we talk about progress here. Because I think sometimes when we talk about progress, we, we, mis, we misunderstand sometimes what this value really means. It doesn't mean increased religious activity to be good enough. It's not this idea of like, I just got to say to myself over and over, I got to be better, I got to be better, I got to be better. And the more I'm better or the more I'm good or the more I, I think and act in a certain way, that means that I'm making progress. No, what Paul actually says is, he's like, I actually forget all that. I, I, can, I, don't, I don't dwell on that reality. I, I, I think about this exact, what he's saying here, as he considers what, therefore, we should think in this way, think differently, I think God will reveal this to you. But he says, he's like, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. So it's not about dwelling on the past in such a way where it's like, oh, now I've got to be better or I've made this mistake. I'm, I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to white knuckle it and, and do it better. Yeah, the goal, we want to have increased self-awareness. But it's the type of awareness of who God is and what he has done. See, Paul had given every reason to say, hey, I've done the achievement route. I've done my zealous desire to be moral and good and keep the Torah. And he says, that's, I don't remember that. That's not what I'm dwelling on here in this moment. And so this doesn't mean stop trying. Rather, his effort is directed in another way. His effort is directed at knowing who God is, Amen. knowing who Jesus is and what he has done. So his effort is not even trying to, to make every like decision perfectly right. His, act, his action is, if I have my thoughts on Jesus, if I consider who Jesus is and what he's done for me, and I allow that to dwell and transform my life, then when I am forced to make a decision, I can simply respond because that will guide and lead me. So his effort is a knowledge of the actual character and priorities of Jesus. And he says, but one thing I do So he introduces this single sentence that draws on the metaphor of a foot race. Described in this graphic present tense, but with a clause that reflects the past. He forgets what lies behind. But there's this future straining towards what lies ahead. And the present is saying, so now, in reality, I press on towards the goal. Paul is informed by the end. 
He knows that because of the work of Jesus, that he will be with Jesus. That all perfection will come to him in the glorious resurrection. That that is a future state reality. So how does that begin to express itself now? Not considering right past action or even poor past action. But the fact that Jesus will remember his sin no more. How does that knowledge start to express itself now? And he says it's with absolute focus and intensity. So Paul forgets what lies behind. It's a special kind of forgetfulness. The kind that does not turn and glance back from the goal to indulge, both in complacency of the effort before of past achievements, nor also past failings. So when I say progress, though, I also don't mean that we should use progress over perfection in terms of value as an excuse for sin. Oh, it's, I made a mistake or I lied progress over perfection. I was dishonest in my taxes or I was, you know, manipulative. Oh, progress over perfection. See, progress over perfection doesn't mean an excuse for sin and no change. And I think what this means is we, ha- we have to kind of relearn, like, what are our own character and priorities? Is that starting to match that of Jesus? Sometimes that means we have to relearn what fun is. Because the idea is that we think fun is rule-breaking. Doing what we want, defining right and wrong in our own lives. Trying to, you know, just no one is perfect. So, whatever, I'm good. And just kind of like look at our life and just kind of wipe everything away. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here either. He's saying he understands the heavenly calling in Christ. And that reality should be sought for, should be pursued. And so the level of striving is not to make excuses for sin, but to realize like his sin has been cleansed. The guilt and the shame and the fear are no more. Therefore, we don't let sin dwell in our mortal bodies anymore. We seek to eradicate that and pursue the heavenly expression of Jesus in our life. So it's Christ's perfection coming out in his everyday life. The more of Christ expressed in his unique story, the better progress. Well, we may never be sinless, As we journey with Christ, we should sin less. And that's the hope. Because what sin does is it pollutes relationships. It causes a faulty willingness. It's an imperfect love. It's it's defining right and wrong in our own minds. And it it damages people, relationships, and ourselves. And so we should seek Christ and seek to be holy as he is holy. So God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus is the reality of the resurrection with God and others. And what Paul, I think also, when, he, when we think about progress over perfection here, he's also not saying beat yourself up or have this false humility. I honestly think that we, sh- we should be deeply grateful and it should cultivate humility in us, the fact that the God of the universe would move towards us. And so sometimes when we do wrong things, we're like, man, all shucks. Like, well, I, yeah, I mess up. And it's, it's this false, where you beat yourself up, where you hang your head. 
That's not what Paul is saying here either. It's not a false sense of effort. But it's a a simply, it's a a response that says, because of what Christ has done, I will actually try. I think some of you, you think Christianity means that you no longer have to try. See, what's amazing is that the cleansing power of Jesus actually gives us the capacity to try. It gives us a power that can overcome all sin, all addiction. It gives us the capacity to say no. Before the cleansing power of Jesus, you wonder why you keep doing the same old things again and again and again. And maybe it's because you haven't actually given your life to Jesus. You haven't even been baptized into him and be given a new creation in Christ. And we want to offer you that today, that type of response, to say yes to Jesus and be immersed into him. And for those of you who have, and you're like, but Kyle, I, I do the same things over. I just, I just stupid, stupid, stupid myself. Like, why are you like, you're forgetting the promise, the heavenly call. That your future self, the, the reality, again, we think in linear terms, but the reality is that you are loved by Christ. And the only way to root out sin and to bring about change is not more meaningful and harm self-talk, but is a deeper and profound realization of that you are loved. As a deeper love. It, it's amazing that sometimes in the church we think, that if we can just heap more burdens on people, that they will get it right. And it's not more burdens or more effort or more rules that will help people get it right. What it is, is a knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done, and that he has sought us, and then that becomes our joy. See, if following Jesus is a lifelong journey, how does it go from feeling like a burden to becoming a lifelong joy? The way that that happens, that switch happens, is when we cultivate ways to be known by God and be known by others. Sometimes people think racing, which is Paul's metaphor here, is an individual thing. It's really not an individual thing. Yes, you have to discipline, less you have to run the race, but I don't know any runner who really runs in isolation. You have usually a support team, to take time to train, you take time away from friends and family, to, to get the right equipment, there's a cost which you have to rely on others. And when you start to think about running the race set before us and following Jesus well, to go from becoming a, simply a burden is usually it's because we're trying to do it ourselves. And the reality is, is to run a race well, we have to do it with others specifically Know that it's first we do it with God. To be known by Him and then do it with others. See, God designed us to live on a rich diet filled of joy-filled relationships. Communities, especially our church community that take joy building seriously, will experience all the benefits. Things like, I feel like I belong. You've probably experienced some of these benefits of joy where you feel like you belong. You feel more stable when things go wrong, where it's easier to be yourself, and you feel free to share my heart with God and others. That see, when following Jesus becomes a joy, 
not some drudgery. You feel your more natural self, and actually your more natural self starts to become, starts to change. And ultimately, joy is the foundation for a secure bond with God. When I trust that God is happy to be with me and is smiling at me. This joy naturally removes fear from the relationship. A goal we should have in our bond with God is to nurture a loving relationship until it has no fear. And this actually is what produces change. You go back to the metaphor of running. My wife is a runner, I am not. The only way I will run is... (laughs) Chase and Ruth, maybe. But it's actually not because I have to or I ought or because she drags me out of bed at 4.30 in the morning to go work out. It's only if my, if my heart has changed. If I see the benefits of a health, if I see it as an opportunity to connect with my wife, as if I see it as a, something that she enjoys and because she enjoys it, I find enjoyment in that. There's this beautiful synergy that happens that we have to start to tear down these walls of we have to be perfect for God when in reality, he wants us to find joy in our relationship with him. And out of that joy, his perfection will start to be expressed in our life. This Philippians book is one known of joy and it seems like suffering and joy are such opposites that you cannot have joy and have problems. But what Paul is so enthralled with this, this community, it's because we find joy when we see each other. Do you know that joy is primarily transmitted through the faith, or for, through the face, especially the eyes, and secondarily through the voice? Joy is relational. It's what we feel when we are with someone who is happy to be with us. Joy does not exist outside of a relationship. Joy is important to God and to us, which is why when we talk about our first impressions team, we want you to smile. We are glad to see people because God sees them. It's not because it's some trick of we're trying to put this awesome program together (laughs) or we want this to be some fake fun place, but sometimes we got to see people and meet them precisely where they're at, and so we want to make a first impression on them, that they are seen and can be known and, in fact, are known by God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 talks about the light of God's face shining in Jesus. And you may find this familiar, that number 6, 24 through 26, is a blessing that God taught Israel. It became a regular prayer of blessing for the Jewish nation. It goes this way, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Joy helps us regulate our emotions and endure suffering, especially when the face of God is turned towards us and we see and embrace that reality. That the Father does not turn his face away, but he sees you. He turns towards you. And when we are able to stay relationally connected to others and God, we experience joy while we suffer. So joy does not remove our pain. 
the difficulty and the strength and pursuing the training of how, how do we live a good godly life, not, not because we're trying to be perfect, but because we're trying to see the perfection of Christ lived out in us. Amen. The strength and the joy of others in the midst of those relationships gives us strength to endure. Joy is relational. Joy and suffering means that God and our community are glad to be with us in our distress. That we do not allow each other to suffer alone, but bear one another in suffering. And so as a church, to put progress over perfection means how we progress is eliminating a low joy culture. That we seek to fill the gaps of joy leaks. That we don't allow people to settle for pseudo joys, to cope with substances or isolation and say, that's a lesser thing. Let me help you root that out so, because, so that you can experience true, lasting joy. I mentioned joy leaks and some of the things that we can help each other with. Our guys group will know this well as we have to develop in our six big emotions. It's one of the things why when we get together on Thursdays, I ask, what is your primary emotion for the week? And wonder why. It's like, well, I feel achievement. That's not an emotion. Or, or, or struggle to say, I, f- I feel successful. That's not quite an emotion. Or, or I feel defeated. That's not quite an emotion. Happy, sat- happiness, excitement, learning, tender, sadness. Fear, those can all be emotions. And when we understand our emotional state, we can mix joy in with that. So that then in that moment, then we can be reminded that we're not alone because Jesus moved towards us. We're not alone because I've got my brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ around me holding my arms up when I don't feel like I can hold my arms up, helping me be sad with me, not trying to fix my circumstance or my pain, but being with me in the midst of, of my pain and reminding that I can take a step forward. I can progress, not in terms of making, maybe making the whole situation better. Sometimes I might need to repent or turn away or say no. But in the reality of saying, I have people who are with me because Christ is with us. And I'm not going to live in the past or in the future. But I'm going to find the peace of God in the present. Paul knew that a race is won only in the present moment. Not in the past or in the future. And it's because of Jesus that he was able to do that. We will never experience the true transforming power of Christ unless the joy of Christ is first rooted in our hearts. The kindness of God leads us to repentance because I'm glad that God has been kind to me no matter where I'm at on my journey. So may we see people on that journey. May we see our own selves as on that journey and not as someone who wants to run from an attempt to race, but someone who wants to get in the race and run with Christ and with others. And may we see his perfection then lived out in us. May the progress that we see not be religious achievement or an excuse of sin, but the reality of Christ's transforming power, the joy that comes from being known and knowing others.
lived out. And so what does it look and feel like to be a church that values progress over perfection? I think we will be a high joy church. Which is why probably to much of your chagrin is what we always say, we're happy to see you. We are. We're glad to be together. Because Christianity is a terrible hobby. (laughs) But it makes a great lifelong joy. And may we enjoy following Jesus together for our lifetime. Because it's a beautiful and powerful thing. So may we eliminate the joy leaks. May we repair relationships and pursue Jesus together. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. When things are difficult and things feel like a burden, may we remember who you are and what you've done. And as Paul says, that you will transform our body from a humble condition to the likeness of your body. God, we pray for that reality. We hope for that reality. We know that reality. May that truth permeate our being. May we know him in the power of your resurrection. May we know that more deeply, Lord. May you embrace us in the way that we precisely need right now. May that transform and change. May we say no to sin. May we recognize that we are forgiven for our sin. May we not let guilt, shame, and fear control us. May we let the call and the invitation to step into your goodness and the perfection expressed in you compel and guide and control us. May we not fake it by beating ourselves up. May we be truly grateful and aware of where we're at on that journey. Lord, we need you. Would you help us? God, I pray for generations, for each individual here. May we look around us and help others run well. Would you help us treat this like a lifelong journey? not simply an overnight occurrence. Would you give us the capacity to endure and find joy when it seems like all joy is lost? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.